following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the chim who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up, one of our, our family activities on Sunday evenings after a long day of church and hanging out, usually grilling, playing around outdoors, we'd sit down at the TV together as a family and watch a PBS show called Antiques Roadshow. Anybody heard of this stuff? Antiques Roadshow, any fans out there? Anybody? Okay, good, okay. Yeah, if you don't know, Antiques Roadshow is like the OG Pawn Stars. People like show up with their old junk, the stuff that they've either inherited or found at a garage sale. They, hey, I think this might be valuable. And they take it to these, these people who are like experts in a specific time period or, or with specific memorabilia. And, and these people kind of take a look at what they have. They assess it, give it a value, tell them what it's useful for. And, and then, you know, it's either worth a lot of money, most you know, oftentimes it is worth some kind of money, or they're told that it's just a piece of junk. And, and so there's something to be said about having something and then figuring out what that thing is, what it's worth, what, it, what value it carries. And, and we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and Paul tells us, if you're a Christian, if your faith has been placed in Jesus, you have something. You have an inheritance. Something has been placed in your hand. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been written into the family ledger here. So whatever belongs to Jesus now belongs to us. We get to share with him in ruling all things that day when the new heavens, new earth. So there's this huge inheritance that we get brought into as Christians. And the present day reality that right now, if you are in Christ, you, that's your inheritance. It's yours. Your hands are on it. It belongs to you. you. You can even access it right now, at least in part. But the future reality is that one day, it's going to get better and better, better with time. Like, the, the inheritance is going to be opened up to you. Every piece of that resource, all of those resources that have been given to you are going to be fully accessible to you. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that both it belongs to you right now, and it will someday come in its fullness. But like the people who are on Antiques Roadshow, we tend to have a limited understanding of what it is that is in our hands. We don't, we don't get it completely. We might get it in part. There, there, there's a bit of like this. It's like we're, we're kids who are frolicking on the water's edge of the ocean when there's a glorious depth to the truth that we could be swimming in. 
And so oftentimes that's what it's like, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord or how long you've been a Christian, there's this, we're kind of in the shallow end. And the Lord wants to take us deeper and deeper and deeper. In fact, that's one of pa- uh, uh, the Apostle Paul's pastoral bents is, I just want to, I want you guys to go deeper into the faith that's been given to you in Christ, to understand what it is that you already have in Christ. In fact, we see here in this passage, Paul is praying for that awareness that people would understand what it is they already have. Now, the reason we can say we already have that, and sometimes our feelings, our experience of the world, what's going on, doesn't feel like we already have that glorious inheritance. It doesn't feel like that. But Paul wants to say, hey, it's true. The truth is you do have this, and so I'm going to start with thanksgiving. In fact, that's what we see in the beginning of this passage. He opens up, verse 15, says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. Paul starts out with a posture of of thankfulness, thanking God for the gift that's already been given to us as Christians. In fact, it's such a good gift, Paul says, I can't stop thanking God. I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift like that. Uh, my birthday was last week. I told you guys already. I'll get over this at some point. But I woke up to this great gift, really hard to find bourbon, super excited to find it. I just, the whole day, I was like, I, honey, I can't believe you found it. I can't believe you got it. I was so excited to a gift that just, you can't say thank you enough. And this is what Paul is saying. I can't stop thanking God for you for what he's done in your life. There's this continual flow of thankfulness that we see in verse 16. Now, what is it that makes this gift so good? Like, what is this gift? Why is it so good? What's he talking about? Why is he giving thanks? Well, when he says, for this reason, those three words are meant to point us back to everything that he's already said in verses 1 through 14. Now, if you've been with us now, we've been sort of going over this at least four or five weeks at this point of unpacking those first 15 verses of the book of Ephesians. And on the micro scale, if you zoom in to what God has done for us, he's he saved us. In, in Christ, we've been saved. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been saved from the punishment of our sins. Not only that, God God doesn't just keep this neutral position towards us, kind of like an arm's length, like you stay on your side of the room, I'll stay on my side of the room, and we'll be fine. No, God says, actually, I'm going to move toward you. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into the family so much so that you are my child and I'm your father. I'm going to bless you, not just with a couple little sprinkles here and there of just so you you think I'm still a nice guy. I'm going to pour it all out. My love, every spiritual blessing, everything that you need for life and godliness, God gives it. See, that's what is available to us on this individual level for us as Christians. But then there's this bigger picture. We talked about this last week, the micro micro workings of salvation, the macro, the big picture. What has God done? Well, God's goal in saving people and working and redeeming the world is to unite all things together in Jesus Christ. Now, that's to mean that heaven and earth will become one, which is why Christians pray in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that God would continue to do his work that he promises he'll do. Now, not only has Paul acknowledged that God has done this. Like, he, he's thanking God. I'm, God, I'm thankful that you have done this, that God is the saving agent in salvation of people. I'm thankful for that. But then he also turns and says, listen, not only do I thank God 
for what he's done, but I'm thankful for the way you, church, have responded to the good news of the gospel, that you are beneficiaries. It's not just this good news that's out there circulating, but it's a good news that's been brought near, that people are beneficiaries of this gospel message. So he said, I, I thank God that he's done what he's needed to do to save, but you've also received the gospel, that you have been captivated by God and his work in salvation, that you've been reoriented to God, that, that it used to be that our, we had this selfish orientation to our lives. That it was about me, my glory, what I wanted, my will, my way. And Paul says, hey, I see that things have changed. It's, it's this orientation that it's God's will be done. It's God's glory. In fact, that's what we spent the last day talking about. It's to the praise of God's glorious grace that he's working all things. It's not about me, although I'm a beneficiary of it. It's about God. And he says, I have seen the way that you've been captivated and reoriented God. And there's two things, two primary indicators in this passage that he puts his finger on. And he says, here's how I know that you have received the gospel. You want to take a look at it here. It's verse 15. We'll start there. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and, number two, your love towards the saints. So number one is your faith in the Lord Jesus and two, your love towards all the saints. What he's saying here with number one, I, I've heard of your faith. So it's not just that the gospel is this piece of trivia or a piece of news or a piece of factual information that people can kind of like nod your heads and say, yeah, I agree with. There's this grasping onto, this sort of pulling into the self where this is a truth so profound, so revolutionary that you can build your life on this and never be put to shame. See, that's what, that's essentially what faith is. Faith says, listen, I've got limits. There's a limit to what I know. There's a limit to what I can do. And, and what I'm called to do in my life goes beyond the scope of my skill, my ability, my competency. And so I'm placed to the point where I have to either continue to double down on myself and find the futility of that reality or put my trust onto something else. And Paul has said, I've seen how you've displaced the trust from yourself and you've placed it onto God and here is how it's working itself out. You've, you've said, I trust Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. Jesus is the only hope that I have in life and in death that I've been made right with God, and Jesus is my all in all. That's how Paul knows. That's how you, you know you've received the gospel. Is Jesus your all in all? But here's the other thing that happens. When Jesus is your all in all, it doesn't mean you just get isolated in this little prayer closet with God. It's like, me and God are tight. We got this going on. We got this. No, no. Remember, you were adopted by the Father. And it wasn't just you. This wasn't like a, a single child adoption here. When God adopts, he adopts a slew of kids. So as I come into the family of God, as I acknowledge God as my Father, I'm placed in the midst of a community of other sinners who are just as jacked up as me. People who are struggling, people who are broken, people who have all kinds of inconsistencies and character flaws. And the way that you know the gospel is working in your life, not only do you have faith in Jesus, but you have a love for the saints. You have a love for your church family. This, friends, now this, I, don't, I wish I had more time to do this, but 
think about the church is there's only a small number of people who are actually like you in the church. The church consists of more people who are unlike you than people who are like you. It's really easy to like people who are like you, right? It's easy to love those people. You can kind of see eye to eye. We share the same worldview, the same values. We've got some, some of the same character traits. It's easy to love those people. But it gets tough when you don't see eye to eye. When you have these run-ins with people where you just like, we are not very compatible, yet here Paul says the love of Christ, the love that you have for Christ is working in faith, but it's also working towards the saints. That there's this communal reality to your existence now that even, even at the beginning of this, I remember as I set up the book of Ephesians talking about every time you see the word you in the book of Ephesians, it's a plural you. Our, our tendency as Americans, Westerners, is to read the word you and think individualistically, to think singularly. But every time Paul uses the word you in this book of the Bible, he's talking about this communal reality. He's saying, y'all, y'all have been adopted. Y'all are family. Y'all love one another. And this supernatural bond that we see in the church can only be explained by the radical love of the gospel that we get in Jesus Christ. And, and, and the way that we see this, the way this manifests itself is in our daily lives. It's in the way that you serve one another. It's in the way that you carry one another's burdens. It's in the way that you encourage and support and nurture. You pray for one another. You set out to bless. These are all evidences that you're loving your church family. Now, what Paul is saying here, guys, I think Paul gets this bad reputation for being this, like, bully kind of a guy. He was driven by the mission of God, planting churches. You read, like, books of the Bible, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, very confrontational. He seems kind of like a bad guy sometimes. He comes down with a hammer. But that at all is sort of a misconception of Paul. And in this moment, we see Paul's pastoral tenderness. Because he's saying, guys, I'm proud of you. I I see what God has done in your life. I see the change that he's brought. I see how you're living into the kingdom of heaven and, and the love of Christ has just permeated your life so much so that it just oozes out, out of you. See, this is so affirming. He sees God's work. He sees the response to God's work. He sees that, that their new identity in Christ has led to this completely new way of being in the world. That their being has shaped their doing. Now, without getting too weepy here, I can say that Paul's pastoral joy towards the Ephesians is what I feel towards you, sacred city. I praise God for you. I love you. I see the work that God is doing in your lives. And sometimes it might feel like two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. But God is with us. I see that. I see the way that you're loving your church family. Some of you, many of you, opening up your homes on a regular basis, inviting people not just into your space, but into their lives, being vulnerable sharing brokenness, clinging to Jesus. I see this stuff, and I'm very proud of the work that God's doing here. I'm very proud of you. And I don't get a claim 
a lot. I don't get, I get to claim this much of this. And what God has done is huge. And as I say to you, and I pray for you often and remember you in my prayers, and I'm proud of what God's doing here, I don't stop asking God to give us more. I don't stop. I'm not, I'm not content with where we are as a church, where we are as individuals, because we're splashing around in the shallow end when there's so much more to be had as we move into the ocean. And so my prayers follow the pattern of, of Paul's here where his praise to God for the people, for the work of salvation, also turn into petition, asking for more and more growth, which is what you see in verses 17 through 20. In fact, that's all we're going. We're just going to verse 20 today. We'll stop. We'll pick up where we left off uh, next week. But he says, listen, I don't stop to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers that God, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he's praying here, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the state, and what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see that? Paul's praise for the church turns into petition. I want more for you. It's like a coach who works with a talented athlete, right? You, every once in a while you see this generational talent come up, whether baseball, basketball, whatever, uh, and, and the coach looks at this kid and is like, I see all kinds of potential. Like you just have a natural gifting that's embedded in your DNA or something that if, if this could get tapped into, if you could acknowledge that, if you could work on this, if you could lean into this, you could become such an incredible athlete. Like right now, you're great. You're better than all your other peers, but you're just scratching the surface. See, that's exactly what Paul's saying, right? Right now, we're just scratching the surface. We're taking the talent that's already uh, been placed in you, like the coach takes the talent that's already been placed in you and is calling it out to deploy it. And I think this is a huge piece of pastoral ministry. This is what it means to be a missional community leader, to, to be in fight club with people. I see your God-given potential, and I want to see you lean into that, that grow and become more and more like Christ. Now, it's easy to read this passage and think, okay, if I were to ask you, what is Paul praying for here? Well, we see words like, you know, immeasurable greatness of his power, words like power, we see hope. So we think it's easy for us to look at this and say, oh, well, Paul's just praying for us to have hope, to have a sense of power. But that's, not the case. That's not what Paul is praying for. He is not praying that you would have hope or that you would have power because you already have it. That has already been implanted in you. If, if Paul were praying that you would have hope, verse 18 would say, I'm praying that you may have hope. But that's not what verse 18 says. I'm praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope? That you may know the glorious greatness of God's power. 
He's praying that you would have an awareness of what you already have. Back to the Antiques Roadshow. He says, I'm praying that you would know. The English word know doesn't do this passage justice at all. Because the way that we tend to think about the word know, it's merely an intellectual endeavor, right? We talk about knowing about engines or knowing about the ecosystem. Like, that's a, a, an intellectual endeavor. I go to a textbook. I, I do something with my mind. That's what it means to, to know. But the, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek, which is actually tethered to the Hebrew word to know, contains that, yes, but it goes way, way, way beyond that. It goes beyond the cognitive into the experiential. Now, you can see this. This is very clear to you when you start reading through the book of, Gen- of, Be- of Genesis. You start reading the Old Testament, and you see that Adam knew Eve, and they had a kid. You got to... That means something different, folks. There is this personal encounter, a relational intimacy that is brought together, not only with the cognitive, uh, those two things united together in knowing. So when Paul is praying that you know, it's not like, hey, I just pray that you'd open up your Bibles and you know, catch a little bit of tidbits here and there. That's not what he's praying. Because it's possible for us to know about something and not experience it. It's, it's possible for me to give you every stat of the Oakland Raiders, yet I don't know any of those athletes personally. I can know about them. I don't know them. But Paul here is praying, yes, that you would know something, that your mind would be turned on to God, but you would also have this experiential encounter with God. In fact, this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique. Christianity talks about, here, if you go to like new age, sort of other meditative religions, that, that they're trying to help you reorient, to situate yourself in the world in a way that would be helpful, that sort of helps you see things clearly. The thing that meditation, they're going to say, you need to empty your mind. Clear it out. Blank, blank slate is the best slate. And then once you've cleared your mind completely, then you'll enter into awareness. Now, I don't know about you, I pray a lot, but I guarantee you I rarely have 30 seconds of uninterrupted prayer. I don't know how to, I don't know how to clear my mind. That seems like a fool's errand to me. But the thing about Christianity, it, it has the same goal of trying to reorient you to reality, to set you in a particular place at a particular time to help you navigate life But the way that Christianity goes about it is not to empty your mind, but to fix yourself to the truth. To to look to see what God says. To fill your mind with those things. To meditate on the truth of God. And that would fuel your experiential encounters. This is why the Apostle Paul prays for us to have the mind of Christ. That our mind would be filled with the things that are of God, that our hearts would be gravitate, that gravitate in a specific direction. And as you meditate on this truth, the experience of this truth deepens deeper and deeper and de- pushing you into the deep end. And as you're pushed into the deep end, guess what? The stuff that Paul affirms at the beginning, your faith in Jesus, your love for the saints, that gospel fruit continues to be produced in your life to the praise of God's glorious Grace. Now, 
Paul prays for us that we would have knowledge, right? Uh, he said to, to have the spirit of wisdom. Now, you might say, well, I thought we were already given the spirit. Yo, well, yeah. We, we do have the spirit. It's a guarantee. We've been sealed by the spirit. If your faith is in Christ, you already have the spirit. But the spirit is an unlimited resource that God continues to give more and more and more of the spirit, specifically the spirit of wisdom, deepening our understanding in him a knowledge of the revelation that is Christ. See, seeing the, basically we're saying, I want you to see and appreciate to even a greater deal, uh, a greater appreciation, an increasing knowledge of the significance of Jesus in your life. There's two things specifically that Paul wants us to have an increasing knowledge of, wants us to, to lean into, to tap into these resources that are already in your hand. And the first one is Christian hope. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, pause there. Just, just for the sake of, of continuity here in the book of Ephesians, this is a theme that we're going to see again later on. He's going to talk about light and darkness, gone, gone from darkness into light, death to life. So here he is, like there, there's a sense of, sure, we've been saved, we've been brought into the light, but there's still this cloudiness in our, in our minds and our hearts so having your hearts continually enlightened so you can see clearly that you may know what is the hope to which he who is God has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now here he's like, here's the hope that you have. There's a glorious inheritance. I already mentioned this. You've got a glorious inheritance awaiting for you. In fact, this inheritance, it's not my inheritance. It's, it's actually God's inheritance, Jesus' inheritance. Everything that he did in his life, death, and resurrection has earned him claim of everything in the cosmos. So that's his inheritance. Specifically, what Jesus is saying here, the inheritance of the saints. The fact that he's redeemed people back to himself, people that he created to be, to be glorified in to find joy and relationship with Jesus has redeemed them back. They belong to him. But here Paul says, listen, because you're one with Christ, Christ is in you, you are in Christ. What is Christ's is yours. This inheritance is yours. Now, what he talked about last week uh, as we surveyed chapters or verses 1 through 15, talking specifically about the big picture of this inheritance, where heaven and earth will be united together, that everything in the cosmos will belong to Jesus, will be marked by Jesus, will be redeemed by Jesus, will be used to glorify Jesus. And what this means is that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. That there will be an end to sin, to death, to sorrow, to brokenness, to all of the things that we find so frustrating and draining about life here under the sun. All of those things will pass away. In fact, actually not just pass away, but there's a new era of meaningfulness that gets injected into this world where only what is good and beautiful and true remains. So there's no more days of, of mountaintop highs and, and just like getting tanked to the valleys. It, it's a, it's a, a line of increasing joy for the rest of eternity because these good gifts, the world, the way God intended it to be is finally gonna be the way that God intended it to be. 
It's a new, new era. That's what we get to look forward to. It's the reality of the new heavens and new earth. It's this total transformation of the world as we know it. And I can't totally explain it here. In fact, attempts to explain it usually underserve what God is actually going to do. Like this is where Christian imagination comes in handy to envision what, what are the desires of my heart and where are they most fully satisfied? Well, the answer is in God himself. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the eternal weight of this glory, it doesn't compare to anything else you've ever, ever known. Like your best day here on earth will seem this significant compared to what's to wait on the, new side of, on the other side of, of, of eternity. In other words, this inheritance that we have is an incredibly bright future that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now hope, what Paul, hope the thing that Paul is praying for, because we already have that inheritance, what Paul is praying for is the awareness to, to really lean into that hope that we already have. And so hope is the awareness of that bright future in the midst of today's darkness. That's what hope is. Everything that we experience right now is tainted by sin, by brokenness, by grief, by sorrow, by pain. We contribute to that. We've been hurt by other people. We experience that as victims. Everything that we have right now is tainted in some ways. And there are dark seasons that we go through. You might be in one right now where you feel this sense of hopelessness. I just can't see past what's going on in front of my face. I'm stuck at this job that just literally drives me to the ground. I've got these relationships that are very complicated. I can't see past. I don't see how we can be reconciled to one another. And you start to wonder, will these things ever get sorted out? Will there ever be a day where this isn't the first thing that I think about? Will there ever be a day where I just feel like there's a relinquishing of responsibility, a relinquishing of the pain, the heaviness that I might feel? Will it always be this hard? See, that's, that's what hopelessness can sound like. It pushes you into a place of despondency. Like, I just don't know. I, is it even worth it? And Paul says, I pray that you would have Christian hope. Now, Christian hope isn't like a... Christian hope is not, I want you to ignore this part of your life and just focus on the pot. Like, shut out the negative, focus on the pot. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is able to hold both of those two things hand in hand. Where Paul says, yes, it's hard. Yes, life is hard. But Christian hope says it will not always be like this. Everything that frustrates, complicates, adds complexity to your life will be removed or redeemed And as you walk with Jesus right here and right now, in the midst of what feels like darkness, he starts untangling the mess of your life bit by bit. So little by little, you move out of a place of hopelessness and despondency and frustration of wanting to throw your hands up in the air. 
And Jesus is working to sort things out. Now listen to me. This does not mean that your, your life will get better. You come to faith in Jesus and overnight your life just, it's smooth sailing from here on out. In fact, you come to Jesus, chances are your life will get harder before it gets easier. Guaranteed. It's gonna get better or it's gonna get worse before it gets better. But here's the sign that Jesus is working. He's with you in the midst of that. He, he's that, that gravitational pull that's pulling you through that mess to say, listen, I, I don't know for sure what's happening right now, but I know what Jesus is working toward. I know that he's, he promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna relinquish my control. I'm gonna watch him work. I'm gonna let hope abound in my heart and say, God, I trust you. Christian hope propels us forward. Even though it might feel like you're going backwards, you're going forward in Christ. Because Jesus is bringing us into this new era, and as we cling to him, he's doing this work. He gives us the ability to not lose heart, even when the odds seem stacked against us. Now, Christian hope is the antidote to what I think is one of the number one plagues of our society, and that's cynicism. We are such a cynical type of people. We, we, C.S. Lewis kind of talks about this in, I forget where it is, I don't know where it is, it's somewhere I read it. He talks about there, there's some benefit to being able to see through things, like, like a Ponzi scheme or, or something that's kind of rigged up to take advantage of you. The ability to have discernment, between, like seeing through that, like what are the motives, what's going on? But he says that if you develop this, and this becomes the, the only way that you look at life, it becomes, you get to the point where you can't see anything because you're seeing through everything. You can't see the substance. It's like a window. Like life to you becomes this window that you just look through instead of a piece of art that you appreciate. And the cynicism that we carry with us, we think, okay, it's not going to work. We've tried this before. Things are always going to be like this. I can't change. You can't change. It's just going to be this way. That's what cynicism sounds like. Yeah, I've tried this before. I've read that book. And so it's just like, nothing can help me. And this is what it sounds like when hope is sucked out like a vacuum of our lives. And the crazy thing about this, not only will it deteriorate your life, like you just eventually become so crunched and shriveled, like it just depletes you. It has this effect, a negative effect on the people around you. It's draining. But Christian hope, Paul leans in here pastorally and says, listen, because of Jesus, there will be change because of Jesus, there can be change, though it's not always gonna be easy. Jesus will finish what he started in my life, in your life, and in the world. The, the work of redemption is underway right now, inching closer and closer to the glory that's intended to inhabit, and it's all things will be set right. Now, this future reality will work itself backwards into my life now. That, that's what hope's, hope looks like. It's the future reality working itself backwards into my life right now and bringing me with it. Now, this can all sound like when you wish upon a star, mumbo jumbo. Like this, is, like, this is a pipe dream. You don't understand how hard my life is. Like, how in the world could it possibly be moving in this direction? 
My heart feels cold. My circumstances are so messy. I've got no energy. I feel burned out. I feel all of the, these things. My temptation is too strong. My previous failures are too embarrassing. All of these things just sort of driving us down to say, like, how in the world? Like, it's, it, it's like snuffing out hope little by little. And the reason why Christian hope can prevail is because the answer to the second thing that Paul wants us to know, this fullness of hope that we have in Christ, is also to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. He says, having the eyes of your heart in line, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. What fuels this hope that we have? The immeasurable greatness of God's power. The, the, the unmatched Strength of his might. Now, these are juicy words, guys. These are juicy words. No adjective can, can fully encapsulate what Paul is trying to get out here. He's saying that there is not a single thing that God cannot do. In your life and in this world, there's not a single thing. All things are possible with Christ. God is a cosmic power plant of endless energy of endless power, of endless strength. He's got enough to drive the entire cosmos for the rest of eternity. In fact, that's why one of the reasons why in the new heavens, new earth, there's no sun, right? Right now, our number one power source here as we sit on, on this third rock from the sun is the sun. The sun fuels our life. In the new heavens, new earth, there is no sun because God is there because Jesus is in the midst of, he is what drives this new heaven, new earth. Now, the power of God cannot be matched. We sang about it this morning. You've got no rival. Actually, I don't know if we sang that one. He says he's undefeated. I think we did. I don't know. So many songs just run through my head at the same time. But we're singing it like there's no rival to God. There's no one who can match God's power. And we see this here in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Up to this point, before Jesus came, death was the big nope to our hopes and dreams. Death, if you had aspirations, death would show up one day and say, no, you're done. That's it. Case closed, bookend over. That's a wrap. Death would win. And it's had 100% success rate for every human who's come before Jesus and every human after Jesus. But Jesus shows up and the barrier, the obstacle that we thought, that we think, that we know is insurmountable, Jesus defeats the grave. That's what verse 20 tells us. We see the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us in the saints who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sat him at, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The fact that Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling over heaven and earth, tells us there's not a single thing that can stop God. And if Jesus can do that to our greatest obstacle of death, there's nothing right now in your life that he doesn't have the power to help you get through. 
There's nothing right now when it comes to hope that can't be fueled by the power of Christ. Because as Romans 8, 11 tells us, Paul says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in your life now. The spirit that seals you is the spirit that empowers you. Well, you might say, I can't, it won't. God says, hold my beer. Step back and watch. Look what I can do. Let me flex on this. He can empower us. He can give us energy, drive, stamina, hope. Because right? we're, we're tethered into the truest reality of what one day will come true in its fullness in Christ. As you put your faith in Jesus, not only does he give you this hope of what will be one day, but he gives us this power to live into that right now, that he's gonna lead us into this, he's gonna empower us to live the kind of life that you long for. Now, in how-to Christianity, that's gonna give you five ways, five steps for you to live the empowered life, I just say, Throw that out. Paul gives us one. One way to live this hope-filled, empowered life that God offers, that God's given you already. And he models it. He's asking God to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know what's already in our hands. I, I cannot manufacture this no matter how many books I read or how much time I spend in my Bible, that cannot guarantee this revelation for happening. This enlightenment will not come automatically by my default of work. God has to impart it to us. And the only way that you get it is by asking. See, Jesus talks about this in his his gospel. He talks about, listen, you don't have because you don't ask. What an invitation that is. You don't have because you don't ask. This is a gift from the Holy Spirit that God is pleased to give. Are you you asking to move deeper and deeper into hope, deeper and deeper into the power of God that's at work in you already? I was asked earlier this week by a friend, what do you feel like is the biggest thing that's holding our church back? Now, God's, I mean, I celebrate. We did all kinds, God's doing all kinds of great stuff. What's the thing that's holding us back? My response was prayerlessness. That's the thing that's holding us back. If we were to ask God, and not just ask for it with a layer of cynicism, like, yeah, I'm asking, so I ask, so when I don't get it, then I could just say, well, I, it didn't work out. but to really ask with a heart full of faith. Let me ask you this. Are you asking? In fact, this should be our number one prayer request, to know what we already have, to know the hope, to know the power, but this should also spill over. Are you asking for this for the people in your missional community? Or are you just asking that God would sort out their mess with as little impact as possible that's required of you? Are you asking God for this for the people that you are on mission to, the people who currently don't understand the gospel or know Jesus? Are you asking for that on their behalf? 
that they would come to find the glorious inheritance that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Now, the reality is here, I'm closing, there's never a point where this prayer isn't relevant for us. Never a point. I mean, we could be like the all-star Christians, like, I don't know, Jesus will come back and write a book of the Bible and say, hey, this church, Sacred City Church in Moline, they just killed it. I want you guys for the rest of the time to try to emulate them. I don't think that's gonna happen, guaranteed. As long as I'm your pastor, that's not gonna happen. There, even then, if we were perfect, there's never a point where this isn't relevant. This should be what you most want and are asking for the most, whether you're a new Christian where you're just stepping into, you just dipping your toe into the ocean, trying to feel it out, see what's going on. God, give me, will you enlighten my heart? Will you show me what you're doing? Or have you been a Christian who's been walking with the Lord for decades? In fact, I got a text message from somebody here a couple weeks ago that said, listen, there, there's some older folks in this church that said that they have felt closer to Jesus in, in these last couple years than they've ever felt before. It's because God is still answering that prayer that they would know him deeper and deeper yet. There's never a point where this isn't relevant, especially, listen, if you're in here today and you're like, listen, I don't know if I belong to Jesus. I, I don't really consider myself a Christian. I'm just kind of here to check it out. This prayer is for you, that you would come to know the real Jesus who is doing real work in this real earth, that you would know God, to, to know Jesus, to see the gospel, to utilize, to value, to live into that. In fact, for all Christians, to know what we already have, what Jesus has made available to us, and then to live into that. Because of Jesus, this inheritance, this hope, this power we have is right at our fingertips. That for every Christian, there's, there's not varsity Christian and JV Christians. The same power that some of the most faithful men and women have access to is, is available to, to the person who's struggling and floundering through life right now. This hope, this power, this glory is right here. Let's ask for it. And as we ask for it, the God of grace who's delighted to give good gifts to his children would, would give it to us and gospel fruit would abound the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us. We don't deserve a thing. We should be, if there's no gospel, we should be the most cynical, despairing, exhausted people in the world. In fact, Paul says, if the resurrection is true, Christians ought to be the most pitied of all men. But we know right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The power of the gospel has been flexed over sin, death, and the grave. There's nothing that can hold you back, Father. There's nothing that can stop you, Jesus. There's nothing that you can't do, Spirit. And so we're asking that you would work in mighty ways. Take us from the shallow and move us into the depths of the gospel. For our good and for your glory, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If the men who are serving would please come forward. This time we're gonna take in the Lord's Supper together. It's, it's a, a physical, it's a, a, a tangible reminder of the sacrifice that God has, Jesus has made for us, that it was his body that was broken. He, he sort of shouldered up, he bellied up to the table of futility, of brokenness, of sin, and he, he drank the cup down to the dregs of God's wrath.
His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that by taking him, by trusting in him, ours would be fixed. By his wounds we are healed. And this is what we acknowledge today. Not only that, that Jesus is, you know, the gospel is working to forgive sin, to bring us in. This is a foretaste of what's to come. There will be a point in time where the church is assembled. All church throughout time and space will be assembled together at this banquet of the Lamb. And we will feast on the goodness of God. This points us forward to that day. That's what our hope points toward. Let's take with hope and awareness of the power of God this morning.